Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mondays with Dan. It's a show that we do here on the channel. Not every Monday, but lots of Mondays. Usually, this show is a news wrap-up of different things that have been happening around the last week or couple of weeks, but this episode's gonna be different because, as you may have read in the headlines, and if you're watching the channel, you're probably engaged with entertainment news and you've heard about this, there's currently a Writers Guild strike happening in Hollywood. The Writers Guild of America has been on strike for about a week now. There are picket lines in front of studios and networks works in Hollywood and New York and elsewhere. And while I think many people are aware that the writers are on strike, I'm not quite sure how many people know why they're on strike and also some of the developments that have happened in the last week or so. So that's what this entire episode is going to be. I'm going to be doing a deep dive into the writer's strike that's ongoing right now, how we got to this point, what the writers want, what the producers are offering or not offering, the potential consequences that could happen going forward, including production delays that we're already starting to see, and what the short-term and long-term future of Hollywood may look like if the writers get what they want or if the producers get what they want. Think of it as kind of a Last Week Tonight segment, which is sort of appropriate because currently Last Week Tonight is without writers. So this is as close as you're gonna get. Sorry, I'm not English. Now this is going to be a lot of info, but it's not an exhaustive rundown of every single piece of information having to do with the writer's strike. If, if we were to do that, we would be here literally for hours. There have been some great publications, uh, news outlets, Hollywood trades that have been covering this for weeks and will continue to cover it, and I'll update you here on the channel as we go. But there are plenty of resources to do a very deep dive into everything that's gone on around this strike. And if you happen to be one of those people out there that are scoffing at the idea that writers are even asking for more pay, I would encourage you to listen to this breakdown and maybe hear a little bit more about why they're doing what they're doing. And also seek out the writers right now on every form of social media who are documenting what's happening out there in real time and also explaining their side of this far better than I ever could. This is the latest writer's strike, but this is not the first time the Writers Guild of America has gone on strike. I was living in Hollywood the last time it happened, starting back in late 2007 and then stretching into early 2008 for about three months. And the Writers Guild of America, the WGA, were negotiating at that time with the same group that they're negotiating with right now, the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, or AMPTP. It's basically a collective organizing body for all of the major studios in town. Every three years, the AMPTP, or as I'll call them going forward, the producers, negotiate what's called a minimum basic agreement, or an MBA, with the Writers Guild, and it basically updates things like residual payments and the things that we'll talk about. And usually, there's some negotiation that happens, but every three years, a new deal is reached. However, every once in a while, 
a deal isn't reached. And if the minimum basic agreement runs out after those three years and there is no deal, then the Writers Guild of America will call a work stoppage, otherwise known as a strike. This can only happen if the Writers Guild themselves, as an organization, votes to approve or authorize the strike, which they did several weeks ago. This is the seventh time that the writers have gone on strike. The longest was back in 1988, when they were on strike from March through August. Back in 1985, the strike lasted just two weeks. But historically, these strikes are matters of months, not days. The 2007 strike was over what was then already being called new media, including issues like DVD residuals, buying content from online stores like iTunes, and watching ad-supported programming online. Eventually, a deal was struck that revised the current agreements and guaranteed writers a slice of that revenue. But in the 15 years since the last writer strike, the digital new media space has changed completely. It's not just people watching things that were produced for television online or buying them through the iTunes store. It's things that are now being produced directly for streaming networks. The way that television is being consumed and produced and the way that films are being consumed and produced has changed radically just in the last five years. And that's what the strike is largely about. At the heart of these contract negotiations, according to the writers, is a way to guarantee that writing can continue to be a profession that generates a living wage in a world where many TV shows have far fewer episodes than they did before and are produced after all the scripts have been written, not while they're being written, as was the case with network television. Last month, 97.85% of WGA members voted to approve the strike if no deal with producers could be reached. That deal was not reached, and a strike was declared one week ago. And as of now, no member of the Writers Guild is allowed to write for or pitch a TV show or a streaming series or a movie or a variety show. You can't meet with studios. You can't meet with your agents. You can't talk to anybody about selling any kind of project, basically unless you are alone working on your own passion project that hasn't been sold to anybody, if you are a writer in Hollywood and you're part of the WGA, your pencils are down. Now, one thing that makes negotiations this time drastically different from the last writer's strike is that the makeup of the AMPTP has changed radically. It was, last time, basically a collection of TV networks and movie studios. Now you have things like Netflix added in and the streaming services as well. Even if they're under the traditional networks and studios, they have different needs. And so instead of a collection of different entities that all work under the same basic model, you have Netflix and Disney, who may have different requests or requirements or financial needs or desires, all now working together. And so not only do the producers have to come up with a solution that they can give to the writers, they also have to come up with a solution that they themselves can agree upon, which could, in the long run, slow down some of these negotiations. And there were rumors leading into the strike that perhaps the deal could have been reached if it weren't for some of these streaming services who work on a different model than the traditional broadcast networks and movie studios. So what are the specific proposals that the WGA was trying to negotiate with the producers and that they couldn't reach a deal on leading to this strike? Well, I'm going to cover a lot of the big ones with the caveat that there are some other ones that are a little bit smaller that I don't have time to cover in this video. For features that are being released on streaming services, the Writers Guild has asked the producers that all features budgeted at $12 million or above that are on streaming services be treated the same 
as features that are released theatrically. And theatrically released features currently sell for more money and also get better residuals over time. As a counter, the producers offered a 9% increase on the selling price for a screenplay for a feature on a streaming service that's longer than 96 minutes with a budget of $40 million or more with no increase in residuals. And again, there was no agreement on this issue. Also in the world of feature screenplays, a key ask for the writers this time around is a guaranteed payment for what's called a second step. And the second step is essentially a rewrite for a movie that's sold to a studio. Right now, writers are basically saying that a studio will buy a script from a writer and then come back to that writer over a period of days, weeks, months, asking for rewrite after rewrite after rewrite, and that the writer is never paid an additional fee for those services. The WGA wants a requirement that any screenwriter will get paid for a rewrite if the screenplay is purchased for less than two and a half times the WGA minimum script fee, essentially a pay raise for any screen writer who doesn't already command a huge script fee and a rule that prevents the studio from demanding lengthy rewrites for no additional fee. According to the Writers Guild, the producers rejected this and instead proposed informational meetings for executives to educate them about the free work concerns that writers have, aka nothing. And when we look at the negotiations as a whole, episodic television is a big part of what the writers want revised in this deal with producers because the very essence of how a TV show is produced has changed in the last five to 10 years. Because for decades, when you had broadcast television, it's pretty much the only game in town, a TV writing gig was a pretty cushy job because most TV shows were guaranteed 13 to 22 episodes. Sometimes you get canceled early, but even still you'd usually produce five to seven episodes. That would mean that you would have a writer's room that began writing weeks before shooting began that would continue working while production happened to write the scripts ahead of time. Many writers, if they were working during production, could learn directing or producing and observe actual production up close and perhaps turn their skills into that avenue as well. So that was a perk of being a writer on a network TV show. And really it was kind of considered for many the dream job for a writer because it was a cushy gig. Working on a network TV show usually meant that you had months of guaranteed employment in a show that was being directly produced while you were working on it. But the streaming era has introduced something new, and you may have heard it talked about in the media, called a development room or a mini room. And it's a concept that's been very troublesome for many writers and the Writers Guild of America. Mini rooms are kind of a complicated thing to explain, but basically instead of the old way of doing a TV show where a network would order a pilot, if they liked the pilot, then they would order a series. Instead, somebody like Netflix will greenlight a show immediately and then compile a smaller group of writers to break just two or three stories as kind of a proof of concept. So instead of a big commitment to a large number of writers, they instead pay a smaller number of writers a lower fee, despite the fact that these writers are still tied up for weeks unable to take work. Then if the show does advance, there's no guarantee that those writers will continue with the show, or if the show doesn't advance, then those writers have lost that time and now have to go find another job. The WGA is basically saying that these mini rooms are taking what was 
once a lucrative career for people that could prove themselves in the business and turning it into a side hustle or a gig economy where you're basically always just kind of jumping from one job to the next to the next and yet just barely being able to make ends meet. To alleviate this issue, the WGA has proposed some pretty drastic changes as to how many required writers a streaming show or a broadcast show has to have and how long they're employed for. The first proposal concerns the size of the writer's room on a series. If a network wants to assemble a writer's room before a show is given the green light or approval to commence production, then under the WGA's new proposal, the show would require a minimum staff of six writers, including four writer-producers. After a show has been greenlit, meaning it's okay to write scripts and to commence pre-production, a writer's room would require one writer per episode, up to six episodes, then one additional writer for every two additional episodes, with a maximum writing staff of 12. So how would this work in theory? Well, let's take a show that's already premiered. Let's look at the first season of Stranger Things on Netflix. The first season of Stranger Things consisted of eight episodes, so if it were to fall under the proposed Writers Guild agreement, then the writer's room would have needed a minimum of seven writers, six for each of the first six episodes, and then one more writer to cover the additional two episodes, episodes seven and eight. And based on the number of credited writers on Stranger Things Season 1, it would have met that requirement, as seven writers received either teleplay or story credit in the first season. Where it gets tricky is with a show like The White Lotus, where all episodes were written by just one writer, Mike White. Under this WGA proposal, he would be required to bring on five additional writers whether he wanted them or not. And the question at the heart of this negotiation is, and is going to be, how can the WGA justify a minimum number of writers that's a blanket requirement whether a show wants those writers or doesn't? This is going to be a very tough question over the next several weeks. The WGA also proposed increases not just in number of staff, but in duration of employment. For writers' rooms before a series is greenlit, the Writers Guild proposed a minimum of 10 consecutive weeks of guaranteed work for the writers. After a show's greenlight, the WGA proposed that all writing staff get at least three weeks of work per episode, and also that half of the minimum staff remain employed throughout the production process, meaning the actual shooting of the series, and that one writer stay employed throughout the post-production process, or for a maximum of 52 weeks, whichever comes first. In the statement rebutting the WGA's proposals last week, the AMPTP said, quote, these proposals require studios to staff a show with a certain number of writers who will be hired for a specified period of time that may not align with the creative process. While the WGA has argued that the proposal is necessary to preserve the writer's room, it is in reality a hiring quota that is incompatible with the creative nature of our industry. We don't agree with applying a one-size-fits-all solution to shows that are unique and different in their approach to creative staffing. Some writers are the sole voice of a show and others work with only a small team. The WGA's proposals would preclude that. And as much as I support the writers in so much of what they're pushing for here, I do have to agree that the blanket proposal is an absolutely unwieldy solution to a very real problem. There has to be some give and take here, but that's what this is supposed to be about, which is negotiation. However, reportedly, one of the reasons that the strike happened was that the producers demanded that the WGA take certain issues off the table completely, including the mini rooms and the duration of employment proposal. So even though this is an absolutely unrealistic solution, in my opinion, that the WGA has proposed, 
I also think that so far there has been no move from the producers to even propose their own solution, and this is why we are stuck in this logjam. There are some other pay rate increases that I could get into, but I want to move on to another major part of these negotiations, which is residuals. TV used to work in a pretty predictable way. You would write an episode, you'd work on that show, the show would get produced, the episode would air, you would know what the Nielsen ratings were for that episode. If the episode was rerun, you would also know what the ratings were for that episode. And if the series got sold into syndication, you'd know how much the syndication fee was, you would know which episodes ran and where and when. It was very easy to find that information and to compensate the talent involved as they should be. But streamers now often don't share viewership data of any kind with the people that make the shows that air on those streamers, making it very hard for talent representatives and guilds to know just how much people should be compensated for a show based on popularity. To help rectify this, the WGA proposed a couple of things. For shows that stream internationally, they proposed a graduated system of residual payments based on how many subscribers a streaming service has worldwide. The producers offered a counterproposal with their own version of these numbers, except for Paramount Plus and HBO Max, who agreed only to the current structure, which is to pay a flat license fee, regardless of how many people subscribe to these various services. And even though there is a big difference between the numbers that are proposed, it is encouraging that there are at least numbers on the table for both sides of this issue when it comes to international streaming. And it seems like perhaps they will be able to find some kind of middle ground here. But where writers and producers seem very far apart is in another ask from the WGA, which is the establishment of a residual system based on viewership that would essentially require the streaming services to provide hard viewership numbers in order for the talent involved in their programs to be granted residuals based on the popularity of these various programs. This kind of viewership data is something that most streaming services have been very loath to provide. Only Netflix directly provides any kind of minutes or hours watched information, which they list on their own site. Everything else is gathered from third parties like Nielsen. The only information we usually get from streamers like Amazon Prime Video or HBO Max are the numbers that they choose to share with the medias, which are usually high numbers when a show premieres, and then no news in the weeks after. The Writers Guild claims that this proposal to establish a viewership-based residual system was turned down flatly by the producers with no counteroffer. But this is an area where I'm not sure they're going to just roll over and give up in order to get something else, because this would be an absolute sea change in the way that information flows from these streamers. If viewership data was actually provided directly from streamers to guilds and representation for residual payment purposes, then it's likely that that data would also become public knowledge. And we would know in actual terms how many people are watching shows like Reacher or The Boys or The Rings of Power without having to rely on these third-party estimates. This would be a complete change in how we measure viewership across different platforms, the biggest change probably since TV ratings were introduced. However, it's also possible that in the series of negotiations, the Writers Guild is able to get from the producers a flat line license fee that they believe is fair remuneration no matter how popular a show, a movie, or a program is, and that we'll never see that data. You know me, I'm a charts man, I'm a data man, I'm hoping that perhaps we will get this system because I want to see these numbers start coming from the streamers directly, but we don't quite know how this is going to end just yet. 
Now, all of the issues that I've talked about so far have mainly, when you boil it down, been about dollars and cents, money, basically. This issue, however, has rocketed very quickly to the top of the list for so many writers, largely because the studios have been laughably bad at disguising just how anxious they are to employ its use. And the issue I'm discussing here is AI, or artificial intelligence. With recent advancements in things like ChatGPT and the fact that this technology is advancing very quickly at this point, the Writers Guild is seeking assurances from the producers that they won't use AI in the future to replace writers. And they're asking for these assurances in a number of ways. First of all, the WGA is proposing that AI not be allowed to write any material for a studio that's covered under their contract, meaning movies, TV shows. Basically, if it's a WGA project, then it is written by human beings. They're also asking that AI not be allowed to generate source material for other writers to work from, and also that no WGA material be fed to artificial intelligence in order for it to learn how to write. Producers rejected this proposal, and their counterproposal, I am not making this up, was a series of annual meetings to discuss technological advancements. And if you think that response was laughable, here's the actual official response from the AMPTP about the AI issue that they released last week. Quote, we're creative companies and we value the work of creatives. The best stories are original, insightful, and often come from people's own experiences. AI raises hard, important creative and legal questions for everyone. For example, writers want to be able to use this technology as part of their creative process without changing how credits are determined, which is complicated given that AI material can't be copyrighted. So it's something that requires a lot more discussion, which we've committed to doing. Also, it's important to note that the current WGA agreement already defines a writer to exclude any corporate or impersonal purveyor of literary material, meaning that only a person can be considered a writer and enjoy the terms and conditions of the basic agreement. For example, AI-generated material would not be eligible for writing credit. Basically, the writers went to the studios and said, hey, don't use AI for anything. And the studio said, oh, yeah, well, you know, that's a really great topic. And we will commit to discussing that with you. And I mean, but, you know, you guys really, I mean, you want you want to use AI, right? I mean, I know you do. It's really useful. And what are you so worried about? It's not like it can get a writing credit. So, you know, relax. Pardon my French here, and at the risk of kind of cracking my objectivity lens, the fact that in a town full of bullshitters, that the king bullshitters, the producers, are only able to come up with an excuse that poor is a very clear indication that they can't wait to start giving jobs to AI, to cut staffs by half, to use AI to generate what they consider to be a halfway there copy, and then, you know, hire a couple of writers to punch it up a little bit. It's very, very obvious where the next cost-cutting measures are going to come from. And that's why so many writers view AI as an absolute existential threat, not only to their jobs, but to the profession of writing. And I have to say, I agree with them. Of all of the issues that are at stake in this strike, this is the one to me where I could see the writers absolutely digging their heels in and saying, we are not going to give an inch here. And I think that they're probably right to do that. And it's also led to speculation that there could be some Voltron-style super strike that could hit Hollywood this summer because the WGA deal with the producers has expired. That's why they're on strike. But come June 30th, 
the deal between the AMPTP and the Directors Guild of America expires. And come June 30th, the deal between the AMPTP and SAG-AFTRA, the Actors Union, expires. And there has already been rumor to the effect that if the producers make it more clear or continue to make it clear that they're not going to give ground on AI and that they really are going to use this, well, this could be a threat to actors and directors as well. And some have said that it's possible that in the upcoming negotiations between the directors and the actors that they may also draw a hard line on AI. And that if the producers don't give in there either, then come July 1st, we could find a Hollywood that has all writers, all directors, and all actors together on strike. Is this a far-fetched scenario? Yes, it is a far-fetched scenario, but I think it also underlines just how important this issue is that people are even talking about it as a possibility. It would be unprecedented in Hollywood history for all three of these unions to be on strike at the same time, but perhaps this is the issue that may drive us to the brink of that very thing happening. Or perhaps the concept of a super strike and the fact that in solidarity with the WGA that the directors and the actors may also draw a hard line, maybe the leverage of avoiding a strike like that, which would pretty much cripple any production that was still up and running in Hollywood, might just get the deal done with the WGA and the producers and get everybody back to work. Now, there has been progress on some points, and there are tentative agreements on a few issues, and that's good. It's always good to hear that there's some progress. But the fact of the matter is that there is a wide gulf right now between writers and producers, perhaps wider even than any strike in Hollywood history, and both sides seem to be in it for the long haul. The producers and the writers both seem very adamant about the fact that they can't give an inch because if either of them gives an inch, then their futures are in jeopardy. For writers, the future of writing is a profession. For producers, the financial stability for their studios and networks, given that many of them are already buried under hundreds of millions of dollars in debt from the establishment of streams streaming services and the streaming wars. The war in the weeks and the months ahead will be about narrowing that battlefield between these two sides until they can reach some kind of a mutual agreement that both sides can live with. And if that should happen, then the Writers Guild will take that agreement back to the union. The entire union will vote. And if they approve the agreement, the strike will be over and the writers will get back to work. There's a lot more to get to, but before we do, I'm going to thank the sponsor for this video, Stamps.com. You see a lot of the work of doing a channel like this on screen, but that's really just the tip of the iceberg. Merch is such a huge part of the online space, and shipping costs can add up quickly. Stamps.com understands this, because for the last 25 years, they've been helping businesses and anyone who helps mail things regularly save time and money. With Stamps.com, all you need is a computer and printer. They even send you a free scale, so you'll have everything you need to get started. Plus, if you sell online, Stamps.com seamlessly connects with every major marketplace and shopping cart. For 25 years, Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses because you can get access to the USPS and UPS services you need right from your computer anytime, day or night. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Set your business up for success when you get started with Stamps.com today. Sign up with promo code MERL for a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the page, and enter code MERL.
So now we know why the strike is happening and we know what's at stake. The question is what happens now and what are the immediate ramifications of the writers in Hollywood not working? Well, those started from the very second that the strike was called and the very first thing that was impacted were the late night shows. As of the writer strike being called, all late night shows immediately ceased production last week. Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Kimmel, Stephen Colbert, Seth Meyers, Last Week Tonight, Real Time with Bill Maher, and Saturday Night Live. As a matter of fact, they've canceled the remainder of their season. So the last three SNLs of the year will not happen. In 2007, the late night shows also went dark and the hosts refused to go on air without their writers in support of the writer strike. But eventually the networks told the hosts that they were going to lay off their entire crews and staff if they didn't get back out there. And so reluctantly, the hosts did return on air with unscripted shows. Some hosts like NBC's Jay Leno were accused of tacitly breaking strike rules by scripting their own monologue jokes, which would basically be tantamount to undermining his own striking writers. David Letterman, who owned his own show and the production company who made it, was able to strike his own deal with the Writers Guild to allow his writers to return while the strike was ongoing. And other hosts like Conan O'Brien did more improvisational time fillers, like spinning his wedding ring on a desk to see how long it would keep going. It's likely that we'll see a similar standoff between the hosts and the networks if the strike continues to stretch on. But the question is, will the late night hosts actually return to the air this time? It really does seem like people are dug in just a little bit deeper this year than they were 15 years ago. For the time being, many of these hosts are paying the salaries of their crew, particularly who are not working right now, out of their own pockets. But even they can't afford to keep doing that for months at a time. As for whether shows that have completed scripts that are currently in production can or should remain in production, that's become a bit of a dicey issue over the last week because technically under strike rules, if your script is complete, you can remain in production as long as nobody is actively writing for your show. However, many Writers Guild members who are now on strike also serve as what are called showrunners on shows, which basically means that you are there as a day-to-day producer, sometimes even a director, and your input is required on a lot of different creative decisions, from casting decisions to wardrobe decisions to sometimes, yes, tweaking an actor's line. And if you're in the Writers Guild, it's already been established that you cannot do dialogue tweaks on set. That is definitely a breaking of the strike rules. But these other creative decisions fall under a little bit more of a gray area. It all centers around a set of responsibilities in the WGA contract with the producers referred to as A through H actions. According to the current agreement, any writing services described below performed by producers, directors, story supervisors, composers, lyricists, or other employees shall not be subject to this basic agreement and such services shall not constitute such person a writer here under. And these are the lists of actions. Cutting for time, which is basically what you do in the editing room. Bridging material necessitated by cutting for time, essentially filling in where you may delete a scene from a cut. Changes in technical or stage directions, that would be an onset action. Assignment of lines to other existing characters occasioned by cast changes, again, that's usually an onset change. Changes necessary to obtain continuity acceptance or legal clearance. That means if you have something in a script that has a brand name or something that you can't get cleared or a character name, you change that brand or you change that character. Casual minor adjustments in dialogue or narration made prior to or during the period of principal photography, which the WGA has clearly said is a no-no, but which studios say is a yes-yes. 
Such changes in the course of productions as are made necessary by unforeseen contingencies, e.g. the elements, accidents to performers, etc., basically an act of God, and instructions, directions, or suggestions, whether oral or written, made to writer regarding story or screenplay. Each one of these actions is given a letter, A through H. That's why they call them A through H duties. Now, there's an interesting way of interpreting the letter of the law there because the studios are saying, well, look, clearly in your agreement here, it says that these actions, A through H, do not constitute writing. Whereas the writers say, no, those actions are writing. What that basically means, though, is that if anybody that's not a writer on the project does those actions, then they don't get credit as a writer. And it's a very key difference. I know it seems very ticky tacky, but it is at the heart of a battle that is going on right now on some of the biggest shows on streaming. According to the studios, these A through H actions do not constitute writing and they expect striking writers who perform these functions as showrunners to be on set during production despite the writer strike. HBO sent out an email last week that said, quote, if you are a WGA member, HBO slash HBO Max respects your membership in the WGA and will not do anything to place you in jeopardy of WGA rules. Under the National Labor Relations Act, the WGA is not permitted to interfere with an employer's right to designate employees to perform certain supervisory functions. If you fail to provide contracted services due to the strike, HBO slash HBO Max will not be obliged to continue your salary. Further, if production is interrupted by the strike, even if you offer to continue to work, HBO slash HBO Max will not be obliged to continue your salary, nor the salary of the cast and crew. Disney sent a similar letter to showrunners saying, quote, we want specifically to reiterate to you as a showrunner or other writer producer that you are not excused from performing your duties as a showrunner and or producer on your series as a result of the WGA strike. Your personal services agreement with the studio requires that you perform your showrunner and or producing duties, even if the WGA attempts to fine you for performing such services during the strike. Your duties as a showrunner and or producer are not excused, suspended, or terminated until and unless you are so notified in writing by the studio. And honestly, if you're a showrunner, you'd already be in a bad enough position trying to parse the difference between what is and what isn't writing and what's technically breaking the strike rules and what's not breaking the strike rules, except that the WGA came forward last week and explicitly said all of those things that Disney and HBO say you have to do, we are saying that you can't do. Because here's what the WGA said in a statement, quote, the so-called A through H duties are specifically defined in the Guild contract as writing services and therefore constitute struck work that Guild members are prohibited from doing during a work stoppage. It is shameful that Disney, which has grown its business on unionized labor, is resorting to familiar union-busting tactics. So let's say you're Tony Gilroy, who is the showrunner on Andor, which is a Disney show. Tony Gilroy publicly stated that he turned in the final script for Andor the week before the writer strike, so all writing on Andor has been completed. However, as the showrunner, on one hand, you have Disney saying, Tony Gilroy, showrunner of Andor, you're required to show up and do these tasks under penalty of your salary being taken. And on the other hand, you have the Writers Guild saying, Tony Gilroy, showrunner of Andor, you are prohibited from doing any of those things, lest you be a scab 
jab and a strike breaker and in bad standing with your union. It is a strong arm tactic from both sides and Tony Gilroy reportedly has opted not to be on set as showrunner, technically in defiance of Disney, but also is doing some things behind the scenes creatively offset, which is technically in defiance of the Writers Guild. And he has taken heavy criticism from some striking writers for what they think is undermining the writer strike. Drawing even more criticism is House of the Dragon co-creator Ryan Condal, who wrote or co-wrote four episodes of season one and presumably multiple season two episodes. While scripting for the second season is done, Condal is reportedly remaining on set as showrunner during the strike, seemingly siding with the studio that those actions don't constitute writing, but this risks fines from the WGA and accusations of scabbing from WGA members. Some shows are continuing production without the involvement of their showrunners, including season two of The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. Other shows have halted production entirely, such as season three of HBO's Hacks, because as the producer said, there was no functional way for them to produce the show without producers on hand making these decisions, which they considered to be strike-breaking. So it's not consistent from producer to producer or from show to show. Many projects aren't being shut down and are trying to complete production if they can, only to hit another obstacle, which is picket lines. You've seen the picket lines that are in front of all the studios, but there are also picket lines that form in front of union productions with writers that are on strike. One of the things that unions pride themselves on is solidarity. And if a picket line forms in front of a union job or a union production, other union members, whether they're on strike or not, will refuse to cross that picket line to go to work in support of the people that are on strike. And what we've seen in the case of a couple of shows like Billions is that striking writers will show up and members of IATSE, who are the stagehands and other technical workers, will refuse to cross that line to go to work, which basically shuts down production for the day. It's just another way that the strike is disrupting the production process. Then we have the shows that weren't even at the production phase yet that were in the middle of writing that will definitely be facing production delays. For example, Cobra Kai Season 6 was in the midst of being written. It will be facing a delay in production, and its season will premiere later than anticipated. And of course, a major project, the final season of Stranger Things, was in the process of being written. The Duffer Brothers announced that all writing has halted for the duration of the strike, that the show will likely not go into production this summer. It's very likely that the strike will still be going on this summer, which will result in a delay in the premiere of the show. The cast is going to get even older, and Netflix's entire marketing strategy around the final season is now probably back to square one because nobody now knows when the show will be produced or when it will premiere. Now, when it comes to the world of film, writers are generally regarded as less important to the day-to-day -day production process, but there are also some cautionary tales when it comes to writer strike movies, and cautionary tale number one is Quantum of Solace, Daniel Craig's second James Bond film. Quantum of Solace began production in early 2008, two months after the beginning of the writer's strike, and one month before it was over. And the script for that film was rushed, completed just ahead of the strike deadline, and Daniel Craig has said in interviews that he and director Mark Forster were basically reworking scenes on set because they were the only people who could do so and because the screenplay just wasn't finished. While global box office for Quantum of Solace sagged, critical and audience response plummeted, and Craig's tenure, which got off to a strong start with Casino Royale, hit a speed bump. 
Did you ever wonder why movies like Terminator Salvation or Transformers Revenge of the Fallen or X-Men Origins Wolverine sucked so bad? Well, part of the reason why is that all of them had scripts that were either reportedly rushed or unfinished due to the strike. And that's not even mentioning projects like James Gunn's Superman movie, which he turned in a draft of, but which he has not finished writing. If the strike keeps going, then production on that gets pushed back. And what does that do to all of Warner's DC plans for the future? Now, if all this sounds incredibly disruptive and headache-inducing, that's because that's what the intention is. A work stoppage is intended to cause headaches for those with the purse strings in order to force them to the negotiation table and concede to the things that the workers are asking for. It's how every strike works across every industry, not just the entertainment industry. And a lot of times these things go on as long as they have to until the people at the top finally are financially motivated to give in or until the workers can't afford to hold out any longer. The industry can absorb a short-term impact from the strike, but the longer this thing goes on, the more destructive it becomes to all levels of production, and it's really even compounded by the fact that we have an entertainment industry that's just now getting back on track from the work stoppages that came with the pandemic back in 2020 and 2021. Release dates are finally being landed and met, and now we're faced with another potential series of work stoppages and delays that could derail everything once again. And if you're one of those people that says, well, why don't the studios just hire non-union writers to write all their stuff? Well, then let me tell you, there's no quicker way to ensure that you will never work again as a writer in Hollywood than to be a scab during a strike, which is basically a person who crosses a picket line and does the work that writers aren't doing, which basically undermines their strike. First of all, it's something that a lot of studios couldn't do legally based on different agreements that they have with the guilds, etc. Secondly, the studios would have a very bad working relationship with all of the guilds once the strike was over. And thirdly, for somebody who perhaps wanted to scab, well, maybe you would make some money during the strike, but once that strike was over, you would never be welcome in the Writers Guild or as a union writer or on a union show. So for people, and apparently there were some out there who thought that this was their big opportunity to break out in Hollywood, I can promise you there is no quicker way to end your career in Hollywood than to scab during a strike. It is the ultimate short-term gain, long-term career suicide proposition. So this is where we are. Two sides apparently at an intractable showdown production slowly grinding to a halt, showrunners caught in impossible positions, and the future of writing and the future of Hollywood hanging in the balance. And where is it all going to end? Well, nobody knows. Nobody's going to get everything that they want. The question is just how quickly are they going to be able to meet in the middle to determine who is going to give up what. And that's what the coverage is going to be for the next series of days, weeks, months. Nobody really knows. So that's my breakdown of the Writers Guild strike. I don't know how long this video is going to end up being, but I've been sitting here talking forever. If you're still listening, thank you so much. This is a bit of a break in format for my usual Monday show. I'll come back next time with the full news recap and we'll do some strike updates, etc. But if you're still watching, thank you for listening to this extensive breakdown of the Writers Guild strike. What are you thinking? Are you hoping for a quick resolution? Let me know down in the comments below. And as always, thank you so much for watching the channel. I'll be back tomorrow with Charts with Dan, where we look at the opening weekend of Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 3. And of course, later on in the week, I'll have more movie news reviews, box office, etc. 
Thanks so much for spending part of your day with me, a large part of your day with me. Until next time, stay safe, and I'll see you then. Bye. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.